to biota.org chat. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the privilege of talking with Bruce Damer, who is a returning guest. Bruce and I were going to record the start of a new podcast called The Matrix Cast with Lorenzo Haggerty. However, unfortunately, Lorenzo is based in Southern California and has been overcome with smoke over the past few days, obviously, with the fires there. So I think Bruce and I would like to send our get well message to Lorenzo, and we're looking forward to starting The Matrix Cast, I guess, about this time next week, Bruce. Yeah, get well and and stay safe, Lorenzo, in those, those flames. Yes. So I think probably we're going to be doing quite a bit of jamming in the Matrix cast in a number of different directions. But this evening I wanted to talk about science and space and artificial life and all the stuff we've talked about in the past, but with kind of current updates. I was looking in one of the local bookstores that I survey with regards to what's on the shelf of science, and the space-related books had overtaken almost all of the science shelf. All the books that had God on the spine were pushed down to the corner of the science shelf and Von Braun and various other folk were gracing the science shelves. Can you talk a little bit about what's happened in the past couple of months with regards to space, Bruce? Well, it's it's interesting. We're, we're kind of hitting some kind of strange, I wouldn't call it a tipping point, but there's some kind of a transition point around space. You, of course, had Sputnik's 50th anniversary, which was a a really big deal, and it concentrated people on finding out, you know, the true story of Sputnik, which was, I'd never read before, and it was fascinating. You know, the people who put it on board and set it up and launched it on the R7 booster. But there's other things going on. We, we just, I just came back from a workshop uh, all weekend at NASA Ames Research Center on humans visiting NEOs, or NEOs, which mean near-Earth objects, uh, i.e. asteroids and perhaps some icy objects like comets that come near the Earth. And there was a palpable realization in the room that at the national level, there may be a chance to shift the priorities of the nation's space program a little bit with the election cycle coming up. But outside of that, and of course, asteroids are really an exciting target and they're, they're, they're of interest to the public with a lot of movies like Armageddon and whatnot. Uh, and they're fresh. They're fresh fresh location you could get to and with a few weeks of in and out travel from the Earth or deep space. But there's also the space tourism. There's the X Prizes that right now in New Mexico is the X Prize Cup going on. There's a there's a space elevator challenge that's that's just happened. There's the Google Lunar X Prize. Uh, I'm organizing a session at the Hackers Conference on all of this. So we can give the, the hackers community an update. But there's just, of course, the Chinese program. Uh, the Europeans are reformulating their vision for space. And there's all these crazy entrepreneurs like Bigelow with his inflatables, and he's launched two of those to orbit. So something is happening. There's, we're definitely out of the, the groove as business as usual, and, and there's so much innovation and ideas you know, you have a launch of new interplanetary missions as well coming up. Yes, I mean, in terms of the presidential election in this country and how that affects the momentum, I was channel surfing a couple of nights ago and I saw some of the most recent GOP debate, and the only reference that they seemed to make with regards to space was putting missiles in space and things like that. What is your view with regards to a kind of bipartisan pitch on space, and, and what's your thinking on that? Well, I think Space policy is perhaps one of the lowest priorities in any presidential campaign. It's like an afterthought. It hasn't always been that way, but it's been that way for decades, actually. A friend of mine, Rusty Schweikart, if I can call him a friend, I've known him for many years, I called him up regarding the asteroid story that we went public with in July, and he said that I think two or three of the campaigns had called him, and he's an astronaut was on Apollo 9 in 1969, and asked him, you know, what should our platforms be? This is kind of funny because he said, oh, this has been happening for decades. The campaigns call me and ask me what their platform should be. And and I've just gotten into the habit of saying they should be the same as everybody else's platform. There should be one, one bunch of platform policies uh, for all the parties and proceeds to try to tell them the prior, what the priority should be. But, you know, here's a guy that, you know, retired from NASA years ago, and he actually, I, I told the group to this week at Ames, you should call Rusty because if you want to influence, you know, what the next president thinks should be done, I mean, this is the first person they're calling. You do get the sense that there are only 
maybe half a dozen, if not less, people who were really formulating the debate with regards to space in particular. Now, in terms of the plurality of people, you're talking about the meeting at Ames, and what you're really doing here in some regard is is talking about what the near and distant future will be with regards to space exploration. What is your sense in that kind of stepping stone? If if one, and I just, I just recently recorded another a live radio show that became a podcast for David Livingstone's space show, and the most common, if, if extraterrestrials you know, came into orbit and looked at how we did our exploration, they couldn't figure it out probably for the longest time because it just didn't seem to make any sense how haphazard things were and how different, different uh, hominoids at different places on the planet seemed to be launching identical missions at different periods of time. They couldn't figure it out, and they would eventually figure out it's because we don't cooperate and we don't think with one mind. And they would start scratching their heads and thinking, how can this be? How can, how can all of these sentient or semi-sentient beings not sort of figure it all out and do the one thing that makes sense? It, it, this is, our, of course, our, our Achilles heel that we're in this reinvention competition constantly doing that, it, it does create some innovation. But truthfully, the most sensible strategy, and it's not something you'd ever see brought up at a NASA meeting, is the following. It's actually to go out into the solar system, characterize all the little objects that whiz past that, that come into the inner solar system, figure out that if you could get one of the objects that's full of rich materials, comets are a good example, but you can also find this in some asteroids, Materials like water ice, methane, various other rich, what they call volatiles, things that sort of boil off if they're subject to heat, but other materials too, iron, you know, uh, calcium, carbon, whatever. Take one of those objects, put a gravity tractor system next to it or whatever capture mechanism you work out and bring it into low Earth orbit. Once in low Earth orbit, now of course this is an intelligent sentience that would not be, there wouldn't be half of the, the aliens believing the other half were about to hit them with a rock. They would be doing it for the whole species. And they would bring it into low Earth orbit or low planetary orbit and start to mine it because it's basically they're made out of the same stuff. You know, our bodies and our oceans and plants and animals all contain these same elements that came in during the birth of the Earth and throughout its life. So to survive in space, you bring one of these rocks close in, you mine it, you get your rocket fuel, you get your consumable water, air, other materials to build gardens or hydroponic support to build structures, ultimately. And then you just, you may bring several of these into lower, you may park one or two of them at Lagrangian points and use them as stepping stones. And you may change the orbits throughout the solar system of these things so you can go from one to the next to the next and refuel. And that is the most common sense mechanism to go off into explore your your neighborhood in terms of the energy use models associated with this i had the privilege of talking with you and brad blair it was it was the energy models associated with this have always puzzled me in some regard in terms of the energy required to move one of these near-earth objects into low earth orbit and the kind of energies involved in moving these these vast things. I mean, obviously you're using gravity to do a large portion of the heavy lifting in some regard, but uh, what are the kind of forces that are required in order to do this kind of manipulation? Well, it turns out, and this is an interesting backstory, I met for the first time this weekend Ed Liu, and Ed Liu's a, a highly respected astronaut uh, who flew on board the space station, and he's now working at Google. So he's moved to Silicon Valley where he can't afford to buy housing. From Houston to Silicon Valley, it's a big shocker, sticker shocker. And Ed actually worked out the math to use a just a multi-ton robotic spacecraft, probably using an ion propulsion drive or something that can run continuously, how if you had this alongside a fairly large uh, asteroid, it could be actually you know, half a mile, a mile, kilometer, whatnot, and have it on a station-keeping orbit going alongside for, you know, it could be for several years that you could create a slight shift in the orbit of several hundred miles so you could avoid having it crash crash into the Earth. And 
this was a, a mitigation strategy, and this got put into a film at the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. One of their shows called Cosmic Collisions features this, sort of a, a conceptual vision of saving the Earth from one of these impactors. But it turns out that the new surveys have characterized tens of thousands of these inner solar system objects, and when they put up a couple of new devices, they'll probably find a million of objects. And, of course, there's probably well over one trillion comets, some of which come into the inner solar system now and then, and then we see them. So what you really are, it's a, it's a kind of a shell game. What you're going to have to do is find the ones that are already going to come very close or that need what's known as the minimum delta V in, in energy to go out and reach them, and also a minimum delta V in changing their their orbits. And what you do is you you pick pick some candidates, park some gravity tractor spacecraft near them, and gradually shift their orbits. And you may actually use, it's like a giant billiard game, you may use other objects to slingshot the ones you're trying to capture. So it's a, it's a, it's a numbers game, but you would eventually do the job, and you, you might, you know, in seven years, you might be able to deliver one of these things. But using relatively low, using slingshotting around Venus, uh, course correction around another large object, and gravity tractor, and then you could precisely deliver the thing um, for use later. Returning to the, the scientific brilliance of politicians, there seem to be two competing groups here in one regard. I mean, the, the, there are scientists that talk about asteroids colliding with the Earth as being a great source of funding for science so they can get finer predictions with regards to asteroid collisions. And what you were advocating is actually, rather than getting these asteroids to collide, to get them to come extraordinarily close to Earth. How do you sell that to a non-scientific audience when they have an immense fear of these uh, large near-Earth objects actually colliding with Earth? Well, as, as, as the aliens would have found out, it would probably be virtually impossible to sell it. Now, if if mother mother uh, expediency came into play, say for instance, for some reason, human beings had to get a lot of material uh, launched into the solar system quickly. Maybe because there is an impactor coming in, and they realize we need a bigger engineering. We need to do a big engineering project within 20 years to solve this problem. Then, of course, I think you you could argue the case. You could say you need you know a million tons of hydrogen, oxygen, rocket fuel within six years or within 10 years in orbit to be able to carry out all this stuff. The only one place you're going to get it is from some kind of captured icy object. Then, because of mother expediency, people would start saying, well, you know, weighing one risk against the other, this committee that's going to bring this ice ball in, it's only 300 you know, meters across, it will actually not, if it's an icy object, it probably won't even reach the surface if somebody threw it at the Earth. You know, it'll burn up, or we'll, we'll bring a small one, we'll bring a, a 75-meter object, and, and we'll bring several small ones, so nobody's ever threatened by it. So there will be kind of a negotiation. There will be a saying, all right, we can do it, and we can answer these people's panic. It's almost like the argument over windmill power production, you know, the environmentalists might say, oh, it's killing birds. But the expediency thing is, hey, if you want to build another coal-fired or oil-fired power plant that does the equivalent, it's going to kill a lot more than a few birds. So get real. So in a sense, if, if, if we're in a situation of critical need, the logic will dictate what we have to do. One would hope that would be the case. Certainly there are contemporary movements that are very, very anti-science. There would be a degree of polarization with regards to this logic. Oh, I'm sure, you know what, it would be just like the film Contact, where there's a whole religious zealots who basically say the end of the world's coming and it should come, and it's, it's, the, rap, it's the rapture, and come bring it in. You know, for them, they're in a reality bubble that would, would believe that. It's very much like the... Uh, people who drank the Kool-Aid after that uh, Art Bell show about the uh, the comet down in San Diego. You know, they were convinced by their leader and by this crazy interviewer, or the interview that Art Bell had that these the comet carried, the, there, was, there were the alien spacecraft in its wake, and it was time to take their lives so they could join, you know, that was their rapture. So there's definitely going to be that. It would be even more crazy than the film Contact showed. 
No, that's that's my concern. That in order even to get funding for kind of preliminary research associated with this, you would need a degree of education, which I don't think exists even in the most you know educated, most civilized nations on this planet currently. And I I think it, that's why, in some sense, if the future of if the 21st century belongs to Asia, meaning you know China, Pan Russia, plus India, South Asia, you know they have the energy, they have the manufacturing. Now they have the finance. They'll have the technology. Uh, they, this this century it belongs to them. Europe is sort of an appendage onto that, and and perhaps the space belongs to Asia, and it may belong to China. And the Chinese may have a more pragmatic approach, and given that they're effectively run by a sort of centralized multi-committee dictatorship, they, when they make the decision, it just, it happens. There aren't, there isn't a politi- uh, sort of religious political movement there that will sway the Communist Party if it decides it wants to do something. And there's a huge interest in education and a huge interest in their space program. Uh, everybody knows and cares about it. In fact, I may be going to Shanghai to talk to a university there about their lunar rover designs. Bringing this back to artificial life in some regard, the idea of artificial life entities being part of NASA's future is something that you've been putting out for a, well, probably a number of years for those of us that have listened to you closely, but more publicly, probably in the past couple of months. Can you talk a little bit about your vision of of artificial life with regards to space exploration? Yeah, it's... uh... It's certainly something that I would talk about in private to sort of visionary technical people, but it's it's so it's way it's more way out than bringing neos into Earth orbit. You know that that's something they can't talk about. But the idea is that when you look at a a rocket, when you look at the shuttle or the Orion or whatever they're going to build, all of those vehicles, if you turn them on their side and you have a tank, you have an an oxidizer and you have a fuel and you have a business end where you get the locomotion, and then you have people sitting on the front. Turn them on their side, almost as, as the Russians do, deliver their boosters, and you've got something very close to a steam engine. You know, steam engines, the oxidizer was the air through the coal in the back, and it drove a drivetrain through the boilers, and you had somebody on the front driving it. And like a steam engine, any one part breaks or there's a seal breach in one of those vessels and you're you're toast you have you basically have single points of failure and so the steam engine you know is the great creation of the 19th century and our technology to go to space is basically 19th century technology and what we're seeing with how difficult it has been to keep space stations running whether it be skylab or mir you know salyut 7 or mir or the international space station they're constantly having problems fires, oxygen generator fails, they get a a collision, and they have a seal breach. There's just this litany of of, of failures. And if you go for any any three-month period, there's near-fatal problems all the time. They require resupply. So think of it this way. If you just said, okay, we're going to Mars tomorrow, we're just going to put engines on the space station and send it to Mars, how long would that crew survive? They would have air and water and consumables and stuff for a while, they'd have power because they'd have their, their solar collectors. But then they would have some failure, and there would be no way to get a part to them. And sooner or later, they would be deceased. And there would be, of course, a radiation event when they got out of sight of Earth's protective mag- magnetosphere. There'd be some kind of radiation event, and they would get fried there. So the, the technology we have to go to space is woefully inad- inadequate totally and woefully inadequate. Even going on a 90-day sortie mission out to an asteroid and back, probably we just don't have the, the technology. It's a very, very high risk. The mean time to failure, as engineers call it, means that um, you're out for 90 days. The mean time to failure for some parts are 90 days. That means that they could fail within that time or out of that time. You just don't know. So it's, the technology's all wrong. But if you look, for instance, instead of, say, the technology of a submarine, which is another pressure vessel that has has single points of failure, versus the technology of a whale. A whale is made out of cells that 
regenerate. If a whale gets injured, it, it gets healed. It takes resources from its environment. You know, it's, it's air. It breathes through its environment. And incredibly adaptable and stays in the ocean, you know, for I think some whales that will, you know, 100 years, 200 years, you know, with, with brilliant performance. That is the kind of technology we need to have to survive in space. The ships basically have to be living. Now, there's the problem with all this is that how do you build, you can't build a, a living ship out of, out of cells because in space they basically would, would wither. You know, they're, they're not, the, the, biota, the, the biota of Earth are very inappropriate for living outside the Earth in a hard vacuum where temperatures fluctuate by hundreds of degrees. So it's, the, it's an inappropriate biology, but it's a starting point. And Freeman Dyson, we can talk to later, many years ago, right, wrote a piece about that maybe, uh, he, it was called the Dyson's Tree, and you probably remember it, um, where he said, on the icy objects of the Oort cloud and on rich chondritic asteroids, perhaps there ought to be evolved or generated by Earth Dyson's Trees, you know, organisms appropriate to live in those environments, take the resources off of them, collect solar energy, and populate the solar system with these sort of fuzzy, fuzzy solar-collecting, nano-generating critters that can live on all this surface area. And that you actually have to do something like that first in order to provide sustenance and resources for humans coming later. You need Dyson's trees everywhere. Uh, we, this is one of the reasons we can't settle Antarctica. There's nowhere that you can, apart from the fish in the oceans, it it's, might as well be Mars, except that it has breathable air. So the McMurdo Station has everything flown in. So McMurdo Station is a very good metaphor for that. So is Las Vegas, of course. Uh, so biota, where biota comes in, artificial life comes in, is cyberspace is the ideal chrysalis or you know, hyper-evolver mechanism to try out the experiment of using the power of evolution in simulated space environments. Simulate an asteroid, simulate the lunar surface, and simulate hypothetical organisms that might live in that environment and run the experiment. And it might take decades, but perhaps after 20 or 30 years, you might say, with all certainty, if we could make a creature out of the following elements that had the following energy collection here and the following way to reproduce here and the following way to digest here, they could live natively in this environment with a high survival rate. And that's really the, the first step to moving Earth's biota off of, off of the planet. And there's one little caveat here. Earth's biota may be off the planet a long time ago in the form of bacteria in crustal ejecta rock that has been thrown off of our planet, or that's maybe possibly where life would have come from in the first place, and that's the panspermia hypothesis. So life may be extant in the universe, but it may be very slow metabolism bacteria in these wet, hot, or wet, or, or, or dry, cold rock, but it isn't really able to operate. It basically becomes comatose. So biota, in the experiment of artificial life, if fully directed, could solve this problem, and the ETs coming into orbit might say, hmm, are they trying to evolve forms of life that can go outside of their own planetary birth sphere? And they'll probably find that a few people, notably people on, a, on telephone calls to Las Vegas, are thinking about this. The thing that I've always wondered about is, okay, you send out these, these biota, they colonize the planets, and then you send the humans. You're talking about 90 days in space. Can you talk a little bit about human psychology over this period of time and how perhaps artificial life could be used to, to fix the problems with human psychology in terms of traveling such distances in such environments? I think there's several ways to do it. If one, if one said, gee, people will go crazy in a tin can for two years, or there may be a certain type of person who just doesn't go crazy, you know, who knows, uh, but would you want to go and have a beer with them? I don't know. For instance, if you say a healthy human is one that has a reasonable amount of space surrounded by some kind of a natural environment that's reassuring, good foods, uh, variation, not having boredom, things to do, they might be quite, arrive quite psychologically healthy. And if you remember this film, I don't know if you remember, Tom, the film Silent Running, which starred Bruce Dern, 
uh, done by Doug, uh, Douglas Trumbull did the special effects. But that film showed these domes on on a ship. This is done. This is a film from '72, and there were gardens in there. And those domes were meant to save the Earth's biota. The Earth had become this desolate, polluted, overcrowded sphere, and some project had had put the last of the biospheres onto these ships and sent them out in the solar system. And there was Bruce Dern, the gardener, the naturalist, the, the, the eco-astronaut, you know, tending his plants. And that kind of vision is interesting because probably that is a health thing. You know, here I am in Northern California, and I bought this this farm where we raise pot-bellied pigs, and I grow a lot of plants, and I do that just to, to keep my sanity level. So I kind of have a, several acres of sanity-inducing nature. So where does biota come in? Well, if you're focusing all your efforts on getting the best the best resources, say icy objects or richly endowed asteroids, and you're, you're focusing this new type of ex-Terran biology to go and colonize those environments and live in the interiors and live on the exteriors, then one goal should be saying, all right, then that's, that is our new spacecraft. If we can bring those into low Earth orbit, if we can colonize them with this kind of biology, if we can hollow them out, we can have these this type of new biology create breathable air. We can create large structures. We can just basically uh, do all the engineering, cementing in a, an interior that will hold the air, build a large structure that's large enough to maintain psychological equilibrium and build a habitat. And this, of course, goes back to Margulis's concept of biospheres. And so these large, richly endowed, well-radiation-shielded biospheres uh, are the place we go. And then they're, they're moved somehow if we want to move ourselves or if we want to just create additional living space or worker housing space. It's not a bad option than trying to build very, very large engineered structures. When I traveled across the U.S., there are parts of Utah, for example, that are completely Martian. And it strikes me that, what, two and a half, maybe 300 years ago, there were humans crossing that environment that didn't know what was on the other side. So, I mean, there's some element in human psychology where the, the people that will survive probably can survive those kind of experiences. It's an interesting kind of side component to all of this to actually think about the, the, the kind of people that probably will survive. Changing directions almost completely. I've been in contact recently with some folk that are talking about biology in Second Life, and this is something that we have been touching upon probably for the past six, maybe 12 months of conversations, both recorded and unrecorded. This is another environment where we can test ideas, and it's something that both of us have talked about. You've been into Linden Labs a couple of times. This new movement seems to be just a few individuals, although Linden Labs seems to be doing some of the publicity. But it strikes me that uh, there are a number of environments that could be used as these kind of testing spaces. Can you talk a little bit about the development of digital space in recent months? Maybe what's going on with Second Life and your thoughts about creating these kind of simulation environments, perhaps with existing simulation spaces? Well, here's, here's some, some good background history. Back in you know, the 80s, when really the ideas were blooming in my head about artificial life, they kind of collided with the ideas of the early 90s about what happens when we get multi-user worlds, and I, I sort of thought, well, gee, you know, if, if you want sort of evolution to happen, you need all this kind of selection pressures, and what better place to get that than putting biotes, or whatever you call them, inside these multi-user worlds, and having people, having the minds of, of, minds of apes, of noble apes, poking and, and prodding at them, and creating all kinds of interesting stimuli. stimuli. And when I met Chris Langton in the summer of 94 at, at Santa Fe Institute, that's the first idea that I brought up. And in fact, in his lab, they were playing Carl Sims evolving blocky creatures, uh, MPEGs on screen. Everybody was ooing and aahing because nothing at, at SFI had ever produced something that visual. And I said to Chris, I said, look, this is, this is the idea. You have these creatures, and those, those particular creatures were developed on a connection machine just as a very big batch process. And I said, you have these creatures and you put them in these avatar worlds, none of which existed at the time. So Chris was having a hard time picturing what I was talking about. And you have the ideal environment. 
the human mind plus rich, richly endowed environments with millions of objects, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And two two years later or so, maybe a year and a half later, I actually finally got him to go into active worlds, and he grokked the idea of a, an avatar space. And we had discussions about it inside active worlds in in world. But then what was interesting is as we started working with Active Worlds, and Active Worlds was really the first competent platform that allowed you to script and to build your own applications in it, to put objects down, to script them very primitively, and to you know have behaviors and whatnot. We abandoned Active Worlds around the year 2000, 2001, because we found that there was no real scene graph, and you couldn't do things like physics. It had really been thrown together like almost a Lego set, and it was inadequate to do the work we were then starting to do with NASA. At the same time, um, I was watching Linden Lab and Thayer.com and whatnot and the other, and we had, of course, massive multiplayer gaming going on, and you had a lot of people trying to do cool game characters and bots. We had Biota 4 at San Jose State, and we invited people who were in the gaming industry who were making multiplayer games and who were creating cool non-player characters, or you'd call them bots, to come and show their work. And for the most part, it was really cool little things that would run around and had some kind of behavior and you shot them, or they they shot at you. And it was clear that there was no intention uh, for them, those, those developers, they didn't have the time or the patience to try the experiment that Carl Sims had tried, which is to let something run for a long period of time and then see the behaviors coming out. It was exactly the opposite. They needed a a cool bunch of behaviors that would drive game-level interaction at the user's rate to create more draw for the game, more things to do. When Linden Labs started coming on the scene, I thought again, well, maybe this will be a richly endowed environment and it would allow the, the biota experiment to happen inside it. But as we saw the kinds of things people were doing and the kind of limitations that Second Life had to impose in order to keep their grid running. It struck me, and I think it probably struck you, Tom, about the same time, that in fact the clocking of, of a multi-user world, whether it be for avatars or gameplay, is always clocked to the level of the user. The, the servers that are serving you, the clients that are running, are always trying to make sure that the user experience is preserved. That means things don't happen really any faster than they have to. They certainly don't want to happen slower than they have to. And resources are strictly limited because they don't want people crashing part of the grid. So, for example, in Second Life, there's a small buffer, I think only in the tens of K, that your script can write data into, you know, that's, that's given to you in a given area. So you, can, you won't overload what the server's trying to do for the other users. So what it comes down to is there's a fundamental disconnect between the goals of a multi-user world and the goals of an artificial life system. The goals of an artificial life system are to take every last erg of CPU power, every last bit that you can give it, even even networking a grid of machines together to get as much sort of phenomena or stimuli or uh, hyper-evolution, if you might call it, done and then take a peek at it. But the goals of a multi-user world are to make sure people have a good experience. So one of them is fundamentally kind of an offline thing with a, with an occasional slowing down of the clock. I mean, if you decided I'm going to go into my biota universe, I'll temporarily slow down the clock so that my mental capacity for understanding what's going on, I can actually understand this. And I'm going to go and I'm going to walk around and see the huge beauty that has been has emerged from the thing, but frankly, they're slowing down to my level so that I can grok it, and then when I go out, it goes back to its normal level, which is much more rapid, and this is, was played out by Tom Ray's Tierra. Tierra was a sort of gene-copying reproducer system, and basically, in order for Tom to understand what was happening, he would do a, a snapshot of the server and dump the system to look at and study it but it was happening much faster than he could he could monitor. And so all he would see was color bars and things moving back and forth and very little in terms of graphics. Then you get middle ground things like Polyworld, and you get games like Darwin's Pond, and maybe there's something there. But I think when you place things in a multi-user setting where you could impact the experience of other people, 
engineers are always going to give the priority, the task priority, to the human experience. So that's a very long-winded. So anyway, the, the end of the story is the concept of digital spaces and our open source platform, which we built for NASA and with NASA funding, was ultimately also to provide a, a common, very powerful 3D architecture that could run at the rated speed for, for artificial life experiments, uh, but is also walkable. And this, this could serve as a common terrarium, if you will, for a number of A-life biota-type projects that once they put their critters or their, their L-system plants in there, they could all interact. But that it would be engineered from the get-go to prioritize the processes of the artificial life experiment. So you've raised a number of points here, Bruce, and I'd, I'd like to touch on a few of them before we move on to talk about graphics. I mean, my recent experience with Second Life, in fact, mirrors a lot of other experiences that I've had with artificial life that we've talked about a bit in the past. The folk who are now talking about putting artificial life in Second Life are still at that phase where they're understanding that the amount of memory they have in the Second Life scripting language will probably not facilitate the kind of artificial life that they want. My immediate response to that was to get on their wiki, post on their wiki and say... We've done this six months ago. We've done the math associated with this, and we'd like to help you as much as possible. The solutions that we came up with, and they feature in podcasts, they feature in email correspondence, is, as you say, you take the client part of Second Life and you explore how you can get the client to act as an artificial life agent in the environment. But what is interesting about that as well is that when people think of artificial life in an abstract sense, they go back to, as you say, blocky creatures, they go back to polyworld, and many artificial life developers are already 10, 15 years on from there. They're in a frame of reference where they now see artificial life as being intelligent agents. It's the psychology and sociology of the life that is what is exciting to them. And I think it's a fascinating problem because you have this lazing community in with Biota, for example, and then you have people that are just new to it and they're saying, okay, well, what we need to do is start making blocky creatures. And that interaction, the liaising between, you know, people such as John Klein, yourself, myself, Gerald, Dave Kerr, these kind of people who are in this lazing sociology, psychology of artificial life, it's, it's bringing people on board who haven't done that over the past 10 years, which is, in fact, a fascinating process. And I think this, this current interaction with an independent group who aren't attached to Linden Labs but are interested in bringing artificial life into Second Life, I think will be very exciting in that regard. And, and bringing them on the, the fast-moving artificial life bus, I think, is the, the interesting part. But you touched on the graphics component and the need for a good scene graph for uh, artificial life development. And this has been an ongoing conversation again for probably well more than a year, well more than we've done these podcasts for. I remember back in the early Biota at Home, Darwin at Home days, you know, lamenting issues with regards to Ogre. And I had a thought recently that if you look at browser technology, for example, there was a time when there was just Mozilla, and then there was KDE, and then there were all these open source browser components. So, for example, when Apple came to put out Safari, the immediate response from the journalistic community that had been following open source said, oh, they'll have to pick Mozilla because that's the only open source browser technology. Well, mysteriously, there was KDE as well. What concerns me with regards to open source graphics currently, and this really goes back to industry, I can't understand why the graphics card manufacturers aren't putting serious development time into a fully-fledged scene graph that is, you know, ticks all the right boxes with regards to highlighting their technology. And the thing that you see with uh, Linux in particular is the likes of IBM, Intel, HP are all contributing to the common open source, you know, operating system soup. But I don't really see the same going on with the graphics card manufacturers. I mean, digital space is still relatively dependent on Ogre. And, I mean, what's your feeling with regards to Ogre and these kind of issues? There are actually a few good choices. There's Open Scene Graph and Ogre and a number of others for the Scene Graph part. But what's interesting is, is DirectX 10, I mean, in a sense... You're, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. DirectX 10 
is, you know, a driver driven by a monopoly that actually has delivered competently um, and is pulling ahead of OpenGL uh, in in the same way that that Vermal was sort of left behind because Vermal was a, a sort of industry standard and industry standards move slower. We're finding that you know OpenGL is just several steps behind DirectX, Direct3D, and Microsoft because it has the investment dollars and because it has the users, you know, whether it be, you know, the, the Xbox user or certainly the PC user, Windows user, it can drive the standard forward, you know, its own version of the access to the hardware. So you'll see as, as DirectX 10 rolls out, there's DirectX 10 compatible cards which drive the sales of those cards because they do all these cool effects. But the more and more, there's more scene graph inside Direct, Direct3D. There's just a little bit more, so they're 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 eating away at the need to have uh, a complex scene graph management. They're putting more and more and more of it into the driver. Just as in the physics side, you know, we we use ODE Open Dynamics Engine to do physics and software. Well, physics is moving into the hardware on the cards, so then physics now becomes accessible via the drivers, DirectX or OpenGL, and probably DirectX first. And so then the physics is managed by the driver. And that's a big part of what you do when you develop environments. So you're, in, in effect, over time, you're beholden. The, the, the custom software components or the custom hardware components end up getting gobbled up by standard facilities in the operating system. And that's the story of Microsoft, of course, is gobbling up those, those, those lower-level standard functions that used to be done by whole industries are now just built in. That's, that's how they built the power that they have. So for someone to develop a scene graph technology, say, for instance, a, a vendor of cards, of, of graphics cards, it's very tough for them to do it because it's a very complex and probably a very unprofitable use of their time when they have low margins on selling high volumes of these cards. So that's not really their business. And Microsoft, they really recognize that Microsoft is going to have a a linchpin hold on the scene graph over time. It's going to do more of what the scene graph does. And then at the other side, you've got engine developers at the major, you know, software houses building games, and their engines are really sophisticated and do incredible things, and they're custom or they're very expensive if they're sold as, as a as an integratable component. And nobody wants to really uh, go and compete with them either. So the, the open scene graph people live in this very, I wouldn't say precarious, but I'd say a limited space that over time will shift. So there, there isn't a lot of motivation for anybody other than, say, people passionate about making cool scene graphs. So you really have to use what you can get at this point and put together what you can put together with what's out there. And my belief is that there's back in 2004 when we really started the push to build digital spaces, we just, the guys in Australia did this review of all the components and at the time said, hey, they're competent enough to put together to make a powerful environment and we should try to do this. And that's, that's when we started. But you, you really had a limited selection. And when you, luckily, turned out for us, when we put it together, it delivered, delivered project after project. I, I guess the analogy for me is slightly wrong because I deal directly with Intel and the analogy with regards to Microsoft being the the be-all with regards to chipsets is not really the case. My sense, and I could be completely wrong on this, but the graphics chips are really of two companies, one of which was acquired by the competitor to, to Intel. So I recall maybe three or four years ago, the uh, chipset manufacturers that were the default graphics card manufacturers started touting their own particular SDKs that tune things for their own particular cards. I can't understand why that didn't translate into... Well, I do understand the market forces associated with games technologies, and I think they're, as you point out, not to be messed with and sway a great degree of weight. But if there is going to be a cutting edge, aside from game development, which one would hope there would be, surely it is in the interest of the, the people that make the graphics chipsets, the companies that make the graphics chipsets, to actually produce specialised or better SDKs than the current stuff that Microsoft is producing for, for generic 
graphics manipulation. And I mean, I, I could see a situation where if one of these two enterprises that produce the, the graphics chips decide that they are going to produce uh, an open source SDK, that it could give them, or maybe not an open source, maybe uh, as Intel does with their compiler, maybe 60 to $80, but would just give them a subtle advantage that would make it a no-brainer for the likes of Digital Space and Brevet and all these other artificial life users and potentially the likes of Linden Labs and these kind of things to just exploit a particular chipset slightly more than whatever the latest Microsoft mush is, is coming with. So, I mean, I guess that's my contemporary frustration, that in developing artificial life systems, I want a degree of graphics and a degree of speed and a degree of camera mobility and these kind of things, which I'm just not seeing in the in the contemporary market, even through the likes of the latest technology from Microsoft. And there needs to be something that pushes that forward. Now, maybe what you're saying is that we should partner with games companies. Well, here's, here's something else that, that just happened. Uh, as you know, I was visiting the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, and uh, Pete Hutt, who's uh, my contact there, he's an astrophysicist professor, they had just held, I think it was in April, you probably knew about this, I, I think I heard about it through the grapevine, they held a special meeting there on the use of direct programming of the pipelines uh, of GPUs um, for scientific purposes. And this is something that for several years, you know, I've heard bantered around the community from the mining engineering community to people trying to simulate uh, bulk materials to simulating very, very massive uh, supercomputing-type simulations, basically saying we don't need those arrays of Unix machines with hard drives. We just don't need them. We our, our simulations are serializable, where you can start these streams and they can be done in lockstep. All we need is access to those GPUs and those those vector pipes to run them directly. And so they had a conference. They've had there's probably been several meetings around the world, but there was one at the institute. And members of of the companies would come, I guess, from NVIDIA and the major companies. And they probably heard this time and time again. But for them, it's like, oh, well, on every release that we do, we change the low-level programming APIs, and there are no standards, and we can't afford to lock something in because the market we would support is so small. It's not even a blip on our radar to support you guys. It's all well and good, and, and you can certainly do this kind of programming, but we can't guarantee it's not going to change when you buy an upgrade and get new hardware. Um, so there isn't an economic driver there. It may it may appear there may be a critical mass is, is reached, and then you suddenly get get your hands on the, the lowest level of the graphics cards, which actually are more powerful than, of course, the, the Intel or AMD processor in your PC. Or someone may just decide to take a generation of NVIDIA cards and put 64 of them in a rack and, and, and power them all up and cool them down and then just make a, a, a special-purpose processor. But that would be a one-off. That's sort of an example of, of people trying to gain access to this power without having to go through DirectX. But then the problems of the economics and no standards and little little brain bandwidth from the manufacturers to deal with these custom applications. I guess my personal frustration is just I'd like to see things in graphics that I can't currently do. While I explore, you know, various avenues, that takes away time from kind of core artificial life development. So it's more a kind of personal message than anything with regards to the, the issues in, in contemporary scene graphs. I think the interesting point may be finding a way for artificial life developers to liaise with game developers. And I think in probably the past maybe six Biota interviews I've done, it has appeared in at least four of them, sometimes naturally, sometimes something that I've instigated. So I think there is some critical mass there with regards to at least the artificial life community creating something uh, that may be more receptive to the, the game community in time. And of course we have to see how Spore does because I think it's billed as an evolution game but it, it's procedural, you know, it's connecting together pre-existing widgets so there really isn't, it, it isn't artificial life, or won't be. If that's, that's my understanding, you may have better insight. 
Well, it's not artificial life by name. As you know, I've made various efforts to interview Will Wright about this, but my feeling is that all these things... I mean, in my original John Klein interview, I mentioned that his screensaver, his Brevet Creature screensaver, had actually gotten folk interested in Noble Ape. I had direct correspondence with people that said, I saw the screensaver and I looked around and I found the screensaver and I found Noble Ape and I found various other things. And I think there is potential in the Spore release to get people interested in artificial life. I think irrespective of whether Will Wright uses the the magic two words, I think there will be a community of users of Spore that will say, well, it's an interesting experience, but I'd like to do a little bit more. Well, where do I go now? And I think that is really the, you know, the, the momentum that the release of Spore will give to all artificial life developers is just think about contacting local news stations and saying, well, the release of Spore is wonderful for us too because we've been doing this for the past 12 years and, you know, shot to screen of Brevet or AI Planet or Ailsim or, you know, Gene Pool or what have you. I mean, I think the release of Spore could have a number of very positive effects for artificial life developers, even if it isn't explicitly Will Wright saying, I wish I had been able to go to the Biota 2 conference, but I developed Spore instead. So, I mean, I think there are a number of ways that the release of Spore could actually benefit artificial life developers in quite a real sense. Whether it brings elements of the games community to our door... Well, if they even get slightly interested, they will hopefully listen to a few Biota podcasts and get a sense that, hey, wait, those artificial life developers were actually talking about this a few months ago. You know, the the interesting thing, after I did the presentation up at Industrial Light and Magic at the end of July, two people came up because I talked about Biota and I talked about a vision for doing a common open source platform to allow all these experiments to happen, and two people came up and they came out to lunch and they said, we're really passionate about this. And these are people who, um, I'm not even sure what division they're from, they're probably from the film animation division, but they're highly skilled, competent people. And I, I would probably guarantee that if you gave a, such a talk at, at a games conference, there would be people in the audience who say, you know what, I want to try the real thing. I want to really, I realize what we do is toys. It's connecting Lego parts together that, that give a behavior. It's not the the real thing. There's no emergent properties at the low level. There's emergent properties with, with the players, of course, and with the pieces that come together, but it's very limited, self-limited. And you'd probably get a few people put their hands up and say, sign me up on that list. I really, I want to try the real thing because I know what real nature is, and it's not this, what we're doing. Well, I think of it in terms of percentages, and this segues perfectly into the final topic of conversation. But what I'll say just before that is I always thought that what we're doing in developing artificial life is trying to attain a percentage situation where if we wanted to model something or some circumstances in the real world, we could say, well, we get maybe 95, 98% of the way there. For example, a colony of ants, you know, we could we could do some kind of predictive metrics and 98% of the time we're right with regards to the colony of ants. Now, in terms of a wide variety of things, if we get 65 to 70% of the way there, that is perfect for the film industry. Uh, the only SIGGRAPH I attended in 99, I think the first Star Wars Regeneration had just come out, and I had a long conversation with the digital choreographer who had done some of the battle sequences. And she was fascinated by the ideas of artificial life and said, as, as you say, it was very receptive to the fact that the film industry, as a starting point, if we got 70% of the way there in terms of an SDK, would, be, would want that. That would be a product that would easily be marketed to the film industry. And I think in terms of player experience in games, and here it's not just things like Second Life, it's uh, first-person shooters, first-person adventure games, these kind of things, even multi-part participant adventure games, if we got maybe 90% of the way there or 95% of the way there, this is a no-brainer for the games industry because this is something which not even needs the kind of testing that they've had to do in Spore because we have, you know, iterative testing is, is so critical with regards to artificial life development. But I think what fascinates me now, and you've seen this through some of the correspondence I've CC'd you on, is that if we talk about artificial life moving into philosophy, psychology, and sociology, there are already groups that are 
saying that they have predictive knowledge of what artificial life is going to be like and what the future is going to hold. And I recently was forwarded some stuff from a fellow who actually instigated the initial development of Noble Ape, who is now an academic at Oxford. And he forwarded me a paper by a fellow called Nick Bostrom, who's also associated with Ray Kurzweil, to tie back to your first Biota chat interview, and probably also what we'll be talking about with Lorenzo in some regard. In any case, this fellow paints a very curious and very divergent view of what computer simulation and simulated consciousness and intelligent agents and these kind of things, what that's all about. So what I discovered was that there is this movement, which I had some precursory knowledge of, thanks in part to to folks such as yourself and Lorenzo, who already had painted this view of simulation, which was in fact quite divergent from the contemporary experience of of artificial life developers. So this is a philosophical movement that discusses and predicts things that happen in the real world. And this was a fascinating interaction in my part, because I was able, in relatively short order to rebut uh, a majority of initial premises and also talk quite strongly about how the argument and principles of the the arguments were fundamentally wrong. So what's fascinating me as a sideline project is this idea of artificial life and the process of simulation and the philosophical theory of simulation, things that Margaret A. Bowden, for example, who was a speaker at Biota 2, published in her philosophy of artificial life more than a decade ago now. I think it was 92, 93 when that came out. But really that movement in terms of artificial life developers hasn't moved on. But obviously Kurzweil's movement are talking about a future based on components that hinge very heavily on artificial life. What's your thinking with regards to all of this? You mean as far as sort of the philosophical or industrial applications? Uh, Let's start with the philosophical applications. Well, I think certainly, I mean, you're getting into kind of, it's even mushier territory because you get into what is consciousness or what is culture, what is memetics, what are symbolic representations, belief systems. And that's such shaky, it's it's the slipperiest of grounds because it's completely subjective, it's completely uh, culturally based. And so I think that it's almost like speculation, say, about social memetics is, is still in the realm of hand-waving fantasy to a large extent because no one, you could say, well, an idea will spread across the Internet and it will morph and change, and therefore that's artificial life at the level of ideas. But that's even more of an abstraction removed from what an understanding of life at the low level is, which is a whole bunch of complex chemical and electrical processes. So we're actually labeling something that is a copying mechanism, uh, and we're trying to, we're trying to, it's not even anthropomorphizing, it's biopromorphizing something that is so far removed from biology that, that there really isn't any way to, to, to comment on it. I mean, my own view is slightly different with regards to the fact that you can identify the errors associated. They believe that there are components of this that are fundamentally futurist, and the way in which they describe it is that it is unattainable futurism, but in the same sense that they know what it is going to be like. I mean, that is part of the paradox in some regard. But what interested me was that, you know, folks like Dave Kerr in Calgary and John Klein in Boston and Gerald in the Netherlands are all counterexamples to some of what they're saying. Now, it's not all of what they're saying, but it is a sufficient part of what they're saying to actually require, I think, some kind of response from actual artificial life developers. And what concerns me with regards to this movement, and has concerned me with regards to other movements that have some affiliation with artificial life, is that... The pragmatism that you need to have in developing artificial life as an actual developer gives a a degree of of granularity to these kind of things that these people do not have. You know, and it it, it reminded me of the day that Howard Rheingold, who had lived, truly lived in the birth of virtual communities from being in well, the conferences on the well, uh, finally came out and said, you know what, GeoCities is not a virtual community. It is a collection of free websites, and that's it. You cannot call that a virtual community and it was one of the few times that an actual practitioner who knew the ropes of a field came out and said misapplication of of term terminology and you know of course everything was being branded virtual community because it was 
it was fashionable. But it's almost as though the artificial life community has to come out and say, guess what, you know, uh, Craig Ventner's making sequences of proteins or sequences of DNA is not artificial life by our definition. We own this term, and this is what it means. And this is what its original intent was back in the mid-'80s. And you can't use this term. You have to create your own term. Sorry. Thank you very much. I agree entirely. And what fascinates me returning us to the start of this conversation is that I look at the science shelves in bookstores, which was primarily the reason that I got into developing artificial life, was going through academic remainders bookstores, where I was from, and buying books because they were relatively cheaply priced on biology and computer science and philosophy and reading these books. And if these books are no longer in the shelves, my concern has always been what replaces these books. Well, as you've stated, our good friend Craig Venter, who is redefining what artificial life is as we speak, is there. There are people like Dawkins who haven't talked about artificial life for for two decades and have open invitations to appear on this podcast. His stuff associated with theology is in the science shelves. And then we have Ray Kurzweil, who did some CRC-related stuff and was very big in digital character recognition, but that gives him a right to talk about artificial life, a field which I understand he has never had any real development in, and the people that he associates with appear not to have any real development in as well. So it then begs the question, as artificial life developers, how do we put our hand up and say, hey wait, what's going on here? This isn't really totally kosher. Now, there is a part of the movement, and I know I'm going to get emails about this, and I know who I'm going to get the emails from, but there is a part of the movement that says that all publicity is good publicity in this case. And the fact that Craig Venter is using the term artificial life is in fact far more important than what he is using it to brand. And I think it's a a curious argument in some regard, because as soon as you put your hand up and say, hey, wait, this isn't quite right, as I'd like to do with regards to the books that appear in the science shelves, you immediately have a division within the community that would say, but wait, you know, at least he's saying the words artificial life. And I think that's that's a curious paradox that I have to work through. But ultimately, the agitation that I feel will probably get me to raise my hand at least a little bit. Yeah, and I, I think that one on the biota site, one could put statement. This is what it is, and this is what it isn't. I mean, you could have an opinion page, a blog. One, one of the great blogs for the virtual world movement is Terra Nova, and serious-minded people are in there, and they're posting there, and they're thinking about things. And uh, if something comes out and it's misnamed, or if something is kind of bogus, they'll call it. How many people read Terra Nova? Not, you know, not, not a huge number, but it's, an author- it's becoming an authoritative source. And, and there are enough respected people who know the history that it makes sense to say, well, somebody called a spade a spade in this case. It unfortunately becomes politics over science at some level. And I think that's the, the interesting thing that artificial life vends on many of these problems, as does virtual worlds in some regard. Well, anyway, Bruce, I think we've touched on absolutely everything we wanted to talk on. Are there any final thoughts that you'd like to, to put in the podcast? Well, uh, for the next show, some of the things that I came back from the Institute for Advanced Study with, talking to Pete Hutt, uh, we can talk about those, more NASA stuff, and some bizarre stuff that we're doing next week when the world's first personal computer, the Link, made at Lincoln Laboratory at MIT in the, the early 60s, is arriving, it's working, and it is the first machine in the world de- de- devoted to interaction with one person with graphics with a, a CRT, with an all-points addressable CRT, and this is 1962, 63. And uh, it'll be very interesting to sit in front of that machine as it spins its little spool tapes and paints charts and graphics, and you type in code and realize this is the first time that people built this environment. And, and you, you couldn't even talk about how many megahertz, how slow this thing is. But in fact, from the videos that I've seen of this before it was put on the truck yesterday in St. Louis, the thing is very responsive. It's very fast. And yet it's the very first, and it started the paradigm that we're, we live in now that, that we think of for supporting artificial life and, and email and interactive human-directed computing was started on that machine. So Sunday, November 4th, if anyone's around Mountain View, we'll have the original people who built the machine and a running version of the machine and that you can experience. We need to do some collaboration between 
the Digibarn on Biota, because certainly I cut my teeth, as you did, writing artificial life, very simple artificial life, on what would now be considered, I guess, vintage computing. And I think the ability to run some artificial life software on some of the Digibarn machines would be a wonderful thing indeed. Yes. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you, Bruce, and why don't we do it again next week? Certainly, if, if uh, I, I will come back from seeing the link being unloaded, and, and we certainly could if, uh, if I'm around. We'll have to double-check all those times. Oh, yes, and hopefully we will start the Matrix cast with Lorenzo in a similar time frame. And hopefully the smoke clears, and absolutely. And in fact, I'm reviewing um, his first Matrix cast he recorded here last year, so that, that will start, and that's going to be a wonderful uh, feed-forward, feed-backward uh, between Biota and the Matrix cast. Definitely. Definitely. Thank you very much, Bruce, for the chance to chat with you. You're very welcome, Tom. <laughs>